Today's teaching text is Matthew 5, 17 through 32. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversaries who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer And you may be thrown into prison. (laughs) Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well... On the weekend before Valentine's Day, what else would we talk about but murder and adultery and divorce? Oh, boy. (laughs) Well, there's some scripture that, uh, to be honest, is hard to hear. It's hard to hear. It's hard to read. It's hard to find God in, 
or can be. And for me, that's because I know certain ways that uh, verses have been used to lay shame and guilt and abuse on people. Um, Or perhaps, hearing it, you've been one of those people who's been abused or belittled. And so it's really hard, if not impossible, to hear this as good news. For some, these verses have been weaponized. They've been bent into dangerous tools that push people away from God. Words that add and multiply pain. Words that add and multiply guilt. To a hurting person who's already hurting, rather than being what they are, which is words of life. Rather than being sweet water that quenches the thirsty soul in need of God. A healing balm that soothes a wounded heart. So, just at the outset, uh, if you have had these words weaponized against you in the name of Christ, um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But I do believe that God has good news for each and every one of us this morning. When you live in the kingdom of God, you notice the image of God in every single person. When you live in the kingdom of God, you notice the image of God in every single person. Person. That's why I asked Bev to read that beautiful poem by James Weldon Johnson. Rightfully climaxing the creation of the whole world on the making of humanity. Remember it said this. This great God, like a mammy bending over her baby, kneeled down in the dust, toiling over a lump of clay till he shaped it in his own image. In his own image. Then into it. He blew the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Amen. Amen. You might know it better in Genesis itself, chapter 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, we're in a four-month series in the Sermon on the Mount, which is from the Gospel of Matthew, it's chapters 5 through 7. And one key, I believe, to properly understanding and interpreting all these verses we read today, and that whole chunk from 5 through 7, is to understand that it actually is one intentional discourse given by Jesus. In other words, the order and the structure matter. That there's reason behind it. Um, it's not just sort of a collection of sayings randomly interspersed. And that's how I first sort of encountered it. Not because anyone necessarily taught me that, but as I was reading it in high school, I just kind of thought, okay, here's like a little nugget, a wise saying of Jesus. It's confusing and hard, but it's Jesus, so I should pay attention to it. Here's another one and another one. There wasn't a clear connection to them all. And I wonder if that's how how you might read it sometimes. But I think that the form and the structure and the sequence of the teachings 
matter. There's an intentionality that Jesus had in giving it and that Matthew had in recording it and giving it on to us. And if that's the case, if it's one coherent discourse, we can ask, well, what's Jesus' aim for this whole sermon? What's the sort of thesis, if there is one, a through line that connects that first verse in 5 to the last verse in 7? I'd suggest, along with others who suggest this, that what Jesus is essentially doing is showing us the nature of the kingdom which we are now invited to live in. That's the point of it all. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' ministry begins like this. Verse 14 of the first chapter of Mark says, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. That's verse 14. Well, verse 15, what is that good news? What is he saying? The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The good news is that the kingdom of God has come near. Or other translations say, it's at hand. And we don't really say something is at hand anymore, but I like it for how visual it is. It's another way of saying, it's right here. It's at hand. It's so close, you could touch it. Reach out. Get it. It's right here. The kingdom of God has come near. It's so close, you can touch it. Now, in our gospel, Jesus says something very similar. This is in chapter 4, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Okay, what is he preaching? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Uh, Dallas Willard, he says it this way. Repent, for life in the kingdom of heavens is now one of your options. It's right there. Do you want it? It's an option. You can actually live like this, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Do you want it? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You can reach it. It's near. By the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, you can actually access the life of heaven here and now. Although not in completion, it is already. Anywhere that we cooperate with God, Anywhere that we live under the rule and reign of King Jesus, we are in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's where it is. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, the through line is that Jesus is showing us the nature, what that kingdom is actually like, and what life in that kingdom can actually be like. And he's letting us know, you, me, we're invited in. Again, that's why the first line he gives in the sermon, he boldly proclaims in the Beatitudes that those who don't normally get a ticket, those who can't afford it, those who don't have even directions to get there, they don't know where it is, those who are usually excluded, the poor in spirit, well, guess what? If they want it, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Jesus is showing us the nature of the kingdom of heaven, which we are now invited to live in. 
Now, that's the reason that I had such a large chunk of Scripture read. Not because I think that I can teach today all of the nuances that are loaded in that text. Or because I want to rush through it so that we can move on to something else more exciting. Because I want you to to start to see how this could all be connected. To see some of the themes that run through it when we read it back to back like that. Okay? Jesus is showing us the nature of the kingdom he's proclaiming. He's saying, when you rightly live in the kingdom of God, you notice the image of God in every single person. But most of us don't. I mean, in every single person? In that person? You know who that person is. For you, there's a that person. Maybe there's even those people. I don't know. But, right? Most of us don't live as if the image of God is in every single person. And for those of us who think we do, Jesus is here to challenge that as well. Okay? And then he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. Uh, In other words, if you want to see what these laws actually look like in person, what they look like when they're lived out, when there's some flesh and bones on the laws, look at me. Look at my life. Look at the way I interact with people. That's what Jesus is saying when he fulfills the law. You know, Jesus is a master at understanding humanity. He really is. Um, He's brilliant. He knows the temptations and the forces at play within us. He knows the reason we often live as if other people aren't made in the image of God. He knows what causes us to live as if other people don't actually matter. Not to God, anyways. I want to talk about two of those forces that he talks about in this large chunk of Scripture. Anger and desire. Anger and desire. First, we'll talk about anger. Anger, of course, is in every one of us. Some of us, our anger is expressed directly and externally. We raise our voice. We use colorful language. uh, We confront people. We seek out conflict when we can find it. We defend someone who looks like they're in trouble or is, is weaker than us. Our anger, in this case, is often directed at others. But then there there are some of us where our anger is directed at ourselves. It could come out where no one ever hears it. It's it's negative self-talk, where we're belittling ourselves, where we're like, you fool, you idiot. Why'd you do that? You got another typo? Um, Or maybe we try to, to repress our anger instead of reveal it. And so we grit our teeth, we clench our fists... We just kind of maybe get critical about what's going on or give the silent treatment. Nothing's wrong. Leave me alone. Or maybe you're the kind of person you use sarcasm, right? I'm not angry. You just use kind of this sarcastic joke that sort of belittles someone or you withdraw. You just get away from other people to hide your anger. 
There are all sorts of ways that our anger comes out, whether it's direct or that it's sort of squeezing out sideways when we try to repress it. It, it comes out eventually, no matter what. Right? And anger is simply a part of being human. And it can drive us to do good. It can drive us to do good. We can be angry at injustice or unfairness. Um, and it can actually like, push us to do something good in the world. Because we just feel this anger, and so we actually do something in the world for good. We do something to care for those who can't themselves. Unfortunately, though, for most of us, myself including, our anger gets expressed or repressed in ways that damage our relationships with others. They sever us from others and and from our true selves. And instead of bringing wholeness, anger divides us. Anger divides us as a community, as people. And remember, Jesus is speaking to his new community. And his community is supposed to be defined by love for one another. Later on, in in a separate gospel, in the Gospel of John, he even says, that's how people are going to know that you're disciples, by your love for one another. So it's kind of the, the test. Are you disciples or not? How's your love for one another? So he knows that he has to deal with anger. He has to address anger. And he does. And now, again, like I said, anger can be used for good. It isn't evil. Jesus simply says anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So maybe that's judgment of what kind of anger you have. Is it healthy or unhealthy? Maybe it's judgment of what you do with that anger. Um, I'm not sure, but it will be judged in some way. But not judgment simply because you're angry. Anger, again, is powerful. There's this this fire, this drive that comes with anger in us. And there's a certain kind of it, a certain kind of anger, which according to Jesus is never acceptable, uh, never justifiable. It's the same, he says, as murder. You might as well have murdered someone. And what happens in this kind of anger is it dehumanizes the other and seeks to wipe out the image of God in them. It's called contempt. Um, Contempt has been called a studied degradation of another. Uh, You're intentionally thinking, well, this person, they're not, just not good. Jesus says, again, Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Racha, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Racha is an Aramaic word. And it was used to express contempt for someone. It was used to sort of mark them out. That person is Racha. They're they're sort of worthless. Uh, They're beneath even consideration. Some people think that the word originated from the sound one makes to collect spittle in order to spit. Like that. It's kind of gross, I know. But it's that idea of spitting on someone. Who do you spit on? Not someone that you view as your equal, especially not someone that you view as made in the image of God. But people spit on other people. That happens 
in our world. And so to call someone Raka, according to that, has that same sort of demeaning, belittling intention as spitting on someone. See, you can be angry at someone and not want to hurt them. You can be angry and upset, not want to hurt them. But when you have contempt for someone, they matter so little that you don't care if they're hurt. You might not necessarily be the one who wants to hurt them. But if someone else was to do it, you wouldn't mind. You no longer see the image of God in them. And this is not the way of the kingdom of heaven. So I wonder for you this morning, who is it hard for you to see the image of God in? Who is it easy to see as disgusting or degrading or less than human? Is it Democrats? Is it Republicans? Is it immigrants? Is it rednecks? Who is it easy for you, if just the thought of that person or that kind of person, kind of disgust comes in your heart? Because where disgust is, contempt is likely lingering as well. Pay attention to that and bring it to God and say, why, why is that, God? What? Jesus is a master at understanding humanity. He knows the temptations and forces at play within us that cause us to live as if other people don't actually matter. Desire, like anger, is in every one of us. And of course, there's more surface-level desires, Like, you know, I want to remodel my kitchen, or I want to learn a new language, or uh, I'd like to go on a vacation to Greece. These are all desires that you may have, you know, Not, not wrong. And then there's deeper desires. Like, you might have desires for relationships of substance in your life. Whether that's a longing for a spouse or for children or even just for deep spiritual friendships that last, like long-term, real relationships. Maybe that's a deep desire in you. Or you might have a desire to move, to live somewhere new, or to start a new career, or to live more simply and intentionally. Or you might have a desire to practice Sabbath, to spend more time alone with God. Or you might have a desire to learn to pray in such a way that you hear the voice of God, right? All the greatest spiritual writers who I've read, and I certainly haven't read all the greatest yet, but the ones I have, they sort of all agree that at our deepest, most base level, the desire that we may be trying to hide or trying to get to shut up is actually for God. That's our deepest desire. And so, like anger... Desire can be good. It certainly it is good. But also, desire, like anger, is powerful. And anything that's powerful can be dangerous. Desire drives us. It fuels us. And one of the strongest strains of desire is sexual desire. It is. It's eros. It's that, that, that desire, um, sexual desire. And sexual desire, just like evil, 
is not, or just like uh, anger, I mean to say, is not necessarily evil. It's simply a part of being human. But because of its power and our cultural failure to integrate it into our lives in a healthy, God-honoring way, sexual desire can easily lead us into dangerous and damaging situations. Adultery is essentially a way to divide our desires in ways that pull at and separate our heart in a way that it was never meant to be separated. Think of a, a married person who says, I like my marriage, but I'd also like to add her into my marriage. Uh, they're, they're sort of saying, I, I like what we've built, but I also kind of want that. Their desires are like being pulled in different directions. It's separating the heart. Yes, I want to be married, but I also want a new sexual experience with someone more novel or younger or, or seemingly more interesting. And just like contempt is this insidious form of anger, Jesus says lust is a perverted form of sexual desire. He says in verse 27, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then Jesus goes on to use these two hyperbolic images concerning the eye and the hand that underscore the threat that unhealthy desire poses to the pursuit of wholeness. The eye, the right eye, he says, to do something to that right eye. The right eye was uh, traditionally understood to symbolize perception. So you could think of the source of desire. You see out of your right eye, you lock in, I want that thing, whatever it is, right? You see it. The right hand, then he says to do something with that. Well, the right hand was also traditionally the dominant hand and symbolized the hand by which you would take that thing which you desire. The strength by which you would grab what you want. And Jesus is saying, it's better to lose these, the source of your desire, your unhealthy desire, and the strength at which you would receive it, than to lose one's whole body. Again, there's this idea of wholeness. Now, of course... He's not advocating literal dismemberment, okay? Uh, Jesus does not want you to chop off your hand. He does not want you to poke out your eye. Please don't do that. But the idea is this, right? Turning another person into a mere body for one's use and abuse cannot help but mutilate your own soul. So when you start acting like a person can be used for anything, including sexual gratification, then you're already mutilating your own soul. You're already becoming unwhole. You're becoming disintegrated. This is a profound failure to notice the image of God in every single person. And the theological question then is this. What brings wholeness into kingdom relationships? Our wholeness and righteousness accomplished by taking possession of people 
Or is there another way? Jesus continues in this sort of theme when he starts talking about divorce. He mentions uh, sexual immorality. It's this word that we have translated into the English. And, and it's this loaded word in the Greek that we may know what it speaks to. Uh, porneia is the Greek word. Porneia. Yeah, it's where we get the modern word uh, pornography from. Porneia, sexual immorality, has a lot to do with treating another person as a thing. That's what a lot of, uh, or all, pornography is. It's, it's making a person into a thing. It's making a person into a means to an end. Whatever that end is. So Jesus is again, even with divorce, he's talking about just and whole relationships. So Jesus references when he's talking about this law of Moses, Deuteronomy 24, um, where, where the law of Moses essentially gives the man uh, a right to divorce his wife, as long as he offers a certificate of divorce. He did not need to give any substantial reason for the divorce, but only to write a letter of divorcement. Now what this did was gives kind of undue power to the man, to the husband. And it often left women in that culture destitute, without means of support, if she couldn't return to her home to be with her father or if she didn't have a brother who could take care of her. Because it was a very patriarchal society, those are the folks who had the income most of the time. And so for economic survival... Again, unless she could move in with a brother or move back in with her father, the only way to economically survive would be to remarry in that day and age. Remarriage was vital. And so the husband who divorced his wife in that age was essentially forcing her into a crisis, a sort of Sophie's choice. In order to survive in that day and age, she had to remarry, but when she married again, both she and whoever she married were considered adulterers. So by divorcing her, he's saying, it's up to you. Uh, Live without any income and protection or become an adulterer. Jesus' teaching, in contrast, both upholds the original sanctity of marriage and seeks to protect women from economic abuse by their husbands. Because if you notice, what he does is he shifts the onus of responsibility from the woman to the man. It says to the man, if he divorces his wife, he causes her to commit adultery. He's now the cause. It's far too easy to treat others as objects to be possessed and later disposed of or leave them in situations of brokenness that render them vulnerable to sin. Reginald Brodnax, he says, In a world that constantly invites us to turn people into objects to be consumed and exploited, Jesus calls his followers to discover wholeness and righteousness in relationships of equity, mutuality, compassion, mercy, 
and solidarity. In a word, relationships that manifest the same justice and love that God constantly shows toward each of us. So you can see how the community of Jesus would reflect the person of Jesus to the world by our relationships, by the ways we relate to one another. That's good evangelism. When the community of Jesus actually shows what Jesus is like to outsiders, that's good evangelism. That's compelling. That's going to draw someone into the community, right? More than an argument does. Now, there's a lot more uh, in all of these verses that I can't really dive into right now um, because it would be like a two-hour sermon, okay? But what I want to drive home is what I think is a thread between this, which is when you live in the kingdom of God, you notice the image of God in every single person. And so you may want to ask yourself, am I actually living as if the kingdom of heaven that Jesus preached is at hand, that it's actually an option? Am I living as if the kingdom of heaven is accessible to me every single day? And one metric to help you discern that is, do I notice the image of God in every single person? All right, some of you might be thinking, Pastor Matt, Jesus can't possibly expect us to actually live this way. In fact, you may have been taught at some point in your life that the whole purpose of these verses is simply to highlight our sinfulness and need of Jesus, not for us to actually try and live that way. In other words, all this is for is to draw attention to our brokenness so that we turn to Jesus as Savior. In fact, Matt, we read this, but you don't seem to be talking about it. In Matthew 5.20, Jesus says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What? Matt, how can our righteousness possibly surpass the teachers of the law? The Pharisees. During Jesus' day, these were the ones considered the most righteous. This should stop us in our tracks. How can we possibly do this? Is Jesus serious? Well, you would be absolutely right that we can't do this without Jesus. And I would never propose to even try it. We need him. Of course we need him in the kingdom of heaven. He's the king. But he invites us into the lived reality of the kingdom. It's not just a trick, like, oh, you thought you were good, let me show you you're not good, now you need me. Okay, go about your life. He actually wants us to live these verses out. The Sermon on the Mount is actually meant to be a clear guide to the good life. According to verse 19, he wants us to practice these teachings. But then what can he mean that our righteousness needs to surpass the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Well, if we read the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, you kind of read along, eventually you get to chapter 23. And in that, Jesus sort of describes what their righteousness is like. 
he gives us a picture of what he means by their righteousness that we need to surpass. I'll read a few of the things he says in chapter 23. The whole chapter speaks to it, but here's a few things. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. Then he continues, verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence, blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear as people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. It's pretty clear what their righteousness is. Their righteousness is external only, and it is hypocritical. And so instead of righteousness that is only external and hypocritical, Jesus is saying our righteousness in the kingdom of heaven, our righteousness must surpass or expand or go deeper than this. Hypocrites is the Greek word that uh, had to do with wearing a mask in a play. It became sort of the language of, of the actor back then. You'd wear a mask in a play, so if you think about it in life, you could sort of change your external behavior while your internal behavior remains untouched untransformed. Your inner life just keeps doing what you want to do. This, according to Jesus, is the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. But Jesus says, ours, our righteousness, must be internal and full of integrity. Integrity instead of hypocrisy. Another little word thing. The word integrity. This one is Latin, this time not Greek, but it comes from the root word integer. Are there any mathematicians in the house? No? Not me. Okay, if you ever have a math need, don't come to me. But what's an integer? It is a whole number. It's not a fraction. It's not two-thirds. 
It's not 4.827. It's 1 or 5, right? It is a whole number. That's the idea of integrity. Not divided, not a fraction. Wholeness, integration of my outer life and my inner life becoming one, becoming whole, becoming integrated. That's the righteousness that Jesus proposes. And you can see that when he talks about murder and anger, the outer life and the inner life. When he talks about adultery and lust and desire, the outer life and the inner life. This is the righteousness Jesus invites us into. Do you want this kind of life? A holistic life. It requires then actually addressing our inner life. Which can be scary. Which can be very slow work. Can be very confusing work. It's a lifelong journey to address what's going on in our inner lives. It can be a lot easier, right? To simply change our behaviors or pretend to do the right thing in front of the right people. But this is hypocrisy. Not integrity. James Weldon Johnson, whose music we heard, whose poetry we've heard today, he tragically died in June 1938 after a train struck the car that he was riding in at an unguarded rail crossing in Maine. But this poet and civil rights leader He was widely eulogized, and more than 2,000 mourners came to his funeral. He was known throughout his career as a generous and invariably courteous man. And he once summed up his own personal credo in a pamphlet that then got handed out in the NAACP. He said, I will not allow one prejudiced person, or one million, or 100 million, to blight my life. I will not let prejudice or any of its attendant humiliations and injustices bear me down to spiritual defeat. My inner life is mine. And I shall defend and maintain its integrity against all the powers of hell. Wow. That's the kind of life Jesus invites us into to recognize the value and importance of righteousness in the inner life. To develop such a rich and sustained inner life that we can withstand persecution and evil and not seek to destroy or erase the image of God in our enemy. In fact, spoiler alert, next week Jesus has a lot to say about enemies that we'll be talking about in his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus wants us to become people who, even in our anger, would never call someone raka. He wants us to become people who no longer desire to use other people for our sexual ends. Like, he actually wants that internally for our lives. Because that makes our lives enjoyable and good and whole. It's not just for other people. It's actually a better life for you when you can live with integrity. He wants us to become people who can live in fruitful and flourishing marriages. This isn't just a new law or some verses to make us feel guilty. 
This is Jesus' promise of the good life. Your actual day-to-day life can be better if you practice these things. For me, for you, for all of us, Lord, may it be so. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, even for heavy words that Jesus might have for us. We pray, Lord, that you would um, allow us to receive all that is truly from you as the word of life, that it would quench where we feel the thirst that only you can meet, that it would be a soothing balm to our wounds that only you can heal, and that it would be a fire under our bottoms where we need to get up and follow the way of Jesus. All this in the name of the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit. Amen.